0: to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Wita L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect. How obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast episode 15. Today, I have the honor of having Anthony Tony Reed as my special guest. I am so proud that he agreed to let me interview him for my podcast. Anthony Tony Reed has fused 30 plus years of marathon coaching. 25 plus years of project management strategies to motivate multi-generational global teams through difficult projects. His area of expertise is implementing multi-million dollar international business projects. He is the co-founder and executive director of the National Black Marathon Association, MBMA and CEO of the Caribbean Endurance Corporation. He is the organizer of the Five Island Challenge, Marathon and Half Marathon. He's been featured, quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Dallas Morning News, Runner's World, USA Today, Ebony, Southern Living, and the Journal of Accountancy. His latest book an autobiography is From the Road Race to the Rat Race, Essays from a Black Executive Marathoner. He holds two graduate degrees, management and accounting, and two undergraduate degrees, management and mathematics. He's taught project management, IT, accounting, and business collegiate courses and seminars. He's authored six books and over 50 business leadership and technical articles. He is a certified running coach and National Black Distance Running Hall of Fame inductee. He is one of about 50 people in the world who's completed the Marathon Hat Trick. One of 50 people in the entire world. The hat trick is at least 100 marathons, a marathon on all seven continents, a marathon in each of the 50 states. This is quite an impressive feat. He was inducted into the National Black Distance Running Hall of Fame in 2017. He is also the first black person in the world to complete marathons on each of the seven continents. His adventures are chronicled, in running shoes are cheaper than insolent marathon adventures on all seven continents. He has had numerous sports related articles published in Runners World and club running magazines. Please welcome Anthony Tony Reed to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy. First, why did you start
1: running? Well, when I was about eight years old, I was diagnosed with a pre-diabetic condition, and the doctor said I would go on insulin by the time I was a teenager. I ended up going to a high school where it was mandatory. We participate in sports two out of the three seasons, and at third season, you still have to take a phys ed class. So I ended up losing weight. And didn't have to go on insulin. But back then, the connection between being overweight and being diabetic really wasn't all that firm at that time. Okay. So in college, I read a book by Dr. Kenneth Cooper, who is based here in Dallas. And in his book, there was one paragraph that said diabetics who are dependent on insulin to either decrease their insulin intake or go completely off of it if they maintain a fitness program. So in 1976, I set a lifetime goal of averaging three miles a day of running, walking, or crawling Okay. so that I can avoid hopefully taking insulin. And in fact, I've kept my running journal here since
0: 1969.
1: Wow. And I've run over 45,000 miles. I've averaged three miles a day, and in that 45,000 miles, I managed to put in 131 marathons. I turned 65 this year, and I'm still not on insulin. That's
0: so, a blessing. That's a blessing.
1: That's the reason I run.
0: And that's the, the name of your book, Running Shoes Are Cheaper Than Insulin?
1: Yes. So, <laughs> okay. Yes. So, I'd like to say all the money I would have spent on insulin, I used to travel all around the world.
0: So what made you start with cross country versus city track or a short distance and speed running?
1: Well, it was in part because I didn't want to play football. Okay. Like I said, at, at my high school, it was mandatory that you participate in those sports, a sport each season. And between football and cross country, I opted for cross country. I was not very good at it at all. I placed 142nd out of 143 in my first cross-country meet.
0: Interesting. So, But you stuck with it, obviously.
1: Well, I stuck with running, but not necessarily with cross-country. I enjoyed being outdoors professionally, worked in information technology my entire life, and I just really did not enjoy being indoors when i was growing up i spent a lot of my summers outdoors playing around and everything and going to camp and running gave me that opportunity to get back outside
0: was your cross-country team very diverse
1: no in fact my high school was not very diverse okay when i was there i was part of what i would call a great socioeconomic experiment to see whether or not African-American inner-city kids could actually make it at a all-white prep school. Okay. As I like to say, if you've, if you've seen the Michael Jackson video, Bad, mm-hmm. at the very beginning of it, he starts off in a kind of rich prep school, and then he's taking the public transportation to get home into the ghetto, into the inner city. Mm-hmm. Well, that was literally my life for four years. Okay. And so I was living in these somewhat two different extremes. So when I was there, my high school, it started actually at the seventh grade, went through high school. There were, I believe it was 400 students there and only seven blacks.
0: Okay. So how was that experience of going to that high school? It was interesting.
1: It was somewhat surreal. Mm-hmm. Because I was growing up in a situation where we had to you know, manage all of our money. My mother was divorced. And she was a secretary, so it was somewhat tough growing up in one sense. And then going out to that school where, you know, kids expected to get a car for their 16th birthday, their Thanksgiving and Christmas vacations were spent, you know, skiing someplace in the Alps. It was very surreal. So I was working every day after school as a custodian, cleaning up the art room. Then I was also I had a job working on the weekends at a barbecue restaurant, washing dishes and serving food. So my life was completely different from those of my classmates.
0: So how did you have time to manage your schoolwork and doing your jobs and cross-country? I simply didn't have a social life. There was no time for anything
1: other than studying, working, eating and sleeping. Anything beyond that was, that was just a luxury.
0: Tell me about your brother, who's a year older. You said in your book that he opened your mind into the possibilities about how far a person could go by focusing and planning.
1: Yes. My brother, Curtis, like I said, he's a year older, and he also went to a white private prep school in St. Louis. Okay. It was different than the one that I went to. I didn't want to go to his school because I got tired of being known as Curtis's little brother. Going all the way through middle school, you know, going through elementary and middle school. So I purposely chose to go to his rival. Okay. (laughs) But the fact that he was making it in this elite prep school kind of motivated me. I didn't want to be the one that dropped out. Okay. And I never heard him complain about anything during those four years. But he hung in there, so therefore I hung in there. In the summer of 1976, sorry, 1978, he decided he wanted to ride his bicycle from St. Louis, Missouri. He was actually trying to go all the way up to Alaska. So just by himself and his bicycle. Mm-hmm. And uh, he made it all the way up to Vancouver, Canada. He had ridden total during a trip about 7,200 miles. And I thought to myself, if he can get on a bicycle and go on this long bicycle trip. And then a couple of years later, he decided that he wanted to go to Africa. So he joined the Peace Corps, went to Tunisia, stayed there for I think about 18 months where he learned to speak Arabic fluently. Mm -hmm. Then he ended up getting kind of contracts between the U.S. government and quasi-governmental agencies And he basically lived in Africa for 18 years, where he learned to speak Arabic, French, Portuguese, and Swahili all fluently. He lived in Tunisia, Niger, Mali, Guinea-Bissau. Can't remember the other countries. So for me to look at the fact that we were basically two little black kids in a ghetto, to go from that to living and traveling all around the world. So I always kind of looked up to him and still do, you know. So I said, you know, if he can live in Africa for 18 years, I shouldn't have any problems at all on a two-week trip to China or a two-week trip down to Antarctica.
0: That's true. So what gave you both the determination to drive? What made him get up one day and decide, I'm going to ride my bike to Vancouver? (laughs) Sometimes I think it's, from one, from
1: the high schools that we went to, we were exposed to a lot of different things that I think a lot of black kids were not exposed to. Our mother got us involved in collecting poster stamps, for example, from all around the world. Uh, so you're looking at two little kids in the ghetto in the inner city in 1960s collecting these stamps. And at that time, a lot of African nations, for example, were gaining their independence and a lot of people didn't realize that the three things every new country does once it gains its independence is it changes its flag, well, the currency and the postage stamps. Hmm. So we were getting stamps from these countries that were not in the encyclopedia okay. and that really weren't in the news. So we really had to do a lot of research to find out where these new countries were and you know, what was going on in those countries. So we probably ended up knowing more about what was going on on an international level as kids in grade school than even a lot of adults had knowledge of. And this is surely from collecting stamps. And so we kind of planted the seed in that there was more to the world than the neighborhood that we were growing up in. Okay. And it just really kind of set the stage for us to just want to explore to see the rest of the world.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That's kind of insightful how your mother made something simple into something that made you want more.
1: Yes. She exposed us to a lot of different things growing up. We weren't able to really do a lot of deep dives into things because of our financial situations, but we were able to get a taste of a lot of little different things such that By the time we got out of high school, we were just ready to see the world.
0: So when you went to college, tell me about that experience.
1: Oh, (laughs) gosh! After going to my high school for four years of literally no party life, no social life, I went to college and I just simply went crazy.
0: Where did you go to college?
1: So I started off at Washington University in St. Louis, majoring in both math and engineering and later math and business. And I got kicked out of college as an undergrad. After I sat out for a semester, I was working as a computer operator and was looking at how fat the paychecks were of people that had college degrees Mm -hmm. and realized it was more to life than basically partying and getting kicked out. So I ended up getting back in college, getting... Two degrees, one in business and one in math. And I'll never forget the meeting that I had with my senior advisor when I went into her office for the last advisory meeting. And I told her that, you know, I wanted to go to graduate school. And she looked at me and she said, you know, you're just not grad school material. Hmm. And I told her, I said, well, believe it or not, I, says, I have already been accepted into four graduate programs in business. And one of them was for a PhD program in math that I didn't even apply for. But they saw that my GMAT and GRE scores were so high, they thought that I must have also wanted to apply for their PhD program in math.
0: Wow, that's impressive.
1: So I went ahead and went to graduate school and got an MBA. And while I was working on my MBA, I read an article about a gentleman who said he believes that person should get MBA or master's degree every five to ten years hmm. because things were changing so rapidly, you needed to put yourself in a position where you were learning things and instead of always kind of dictating to other people. So I kind of let that be, again, one of my lifetime objectives. So every four or five years, I ended up getting a professional certification or another degree. When I got my second master's degree, it was in accounting. Again, having worked in technology all those years. And the only reason I went to get that degree was because I had been rising up in the ranks of corporate America. And I noticed people didn't believe that an African American had managed multimillion dollar international projects. That wasn't a challenge with my white counterparts. They can go into an interview. And say that, yeah, you know, they did all this management and people would take them for their word. But in my situation, that rarely happened.
2: Yes, sir.
1: Every company I worked in from 1976 to the time I retired, I was either the first African-American in information technology, the highest ranking black in information technology, or the highest ranking black in the entire company. And this includes Fortune 500 companies such as Texas Instruments and even frito Lay. So, I went back to college to get this master's in accounting just to prove that I had the knowledge to manage multi million dollar projects and multi million dollar budgets. While I was working on my master's degree in accounting, the number of students attending the classes shrank dramatically from the first two accounting classes till we got to the advanced accounting classes. The class sizes went from two to 300 students down to just anywhere from 10 to a dozen students. Mm-hmm. And in these advanced accounting classes, they were so challenging that the highest grade in the classes was typically about a 70. Wow. And the professor said that because of that, they had to the grade on a curve. Uh, I remember the first night of the advanced accounting class, I was the only black in the class. The professor, again, told us that he had to grade on a curve and that the only way you could pass the class was by joining a study group. So during a class break cuz the class met for about 3 hours once a week everyone formed their study groups and I looked around and no one wanted me in their study group. Mm. So I'm faced with this, you know, situation to do. I go up to the professor and complain and say, "Hey, you know, I need to be in a study group." But I realized if I did that, I would be put in with a group of individuals who didn't want me there. I thought, "Well, I could drop the class and try to take it another semester." But I realized that this is something that was probably going to happen for all the advanced classes, or I could change, basically change my major. But there's a saying that if you throw me to the wolves, I'll come back leading the pack. Okay. So I decided to kind of get revenge on the entire class.
0: So what did you do?
1: I broke the curve. Okay. I studied by myself and took the first exam. And we came back the next week, and I remember the professor stood in front of the class, and he said, something kind of interesting happened. And he says, I'm not going to be able to grade on a curve. Someone scored like a 93 or 94, and the next highest grade was a 70. And so because of that, he couldn't grade on a curve. Now, in grad school, anything below a B is considered failing. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: In fact, if I remember correctly, you could not get more than two Cs. In graduate school, if you did, you got kicked out. So the professor handed out the papers and he got to me and he just kind of smiled. He handed me this paper that had a 90 on it. So I was the (laughs) only person in the class who passed and literally the entire class failed. The class didn't even think that I was the one that got the 90. There was a gentleman who didn't show up at class that night. They thought it was him. They thought it was him. Again, they just didn't want to give me credit. So, when they found out that I was the one that got the 90, naturally they invited me to join their study groups. And I, you know, kind of respectfully declined, saying, no, you know, I kind of have my own little system. And it worked, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It, it worked. <laughs> so, that continued for me all throughout the advanced accounting classes. And the funny thing is, is that I failed my undergraduate accounting classes. Hmm. So, what the students did. It just really lit a fire under me. Go ahead and excel in another area where people thought I was going to fail.
0: So going back, what did your advisor say? You said that you had been accepted into these graduate programs, into a PhD program.
1: My advisor got up and walked out of the room. She never said another word. But, you know, it was one of the situations and one of the things that I like to tell young people is basically your destiny is truly in your hands. When you go to college, you have a responsibility to read that college catalog, to know everything you need to do to get out of college. And, you know, you need to understand what the requirements are, what courses you need to take, need to find out when those courses are offered, because you can easily have an advisor who really doesn't support you in trying to achieve your goals. And that was the situation that I had with my undergraduate school advisor. Once I got kicked out of college and I made the decision that I wanted to go back and graduate, I also knew that grad schools would look at your overall grade point average or your grade point average just for your final two years, you know, Mm -hmm. for your junior and senior year, basically your advanced classes. So I kicked butt in all of my advanced classes For my junior and senior year, even though my undergrad, my first two years were basically not not all that good. And so I went into my senior year aware of all of this. And again, despite the put downs basically from my advisor, I did all the work myself to get into the graduate programs and it worked.
0: That's interesting. It takes me back to a lot of Counselors telling children that they don't need to apply to college, advisors, even when I was applying for a residency, I got bad advice from my program. They told me I'm a black woman in orthopedics is very rare. My program director told me, don't apply here because we have a quota of women because they had two women in my program where I was in med school.
1: Yes. And surprisingly, over time, some of those things simply haven't changed. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: When I went back to my high school when Gentleman was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and just so happened, I was going to be one of the scheduled speakers there at the school. And I was going to talk about my adventures from running marathons all around the world. But it really just hung on me that You know, this murder had just taken place by this police officer. Mm -hmm. So I figured since I had the microphone, I was going to go ahead and talk about what my life was like growing up there in St. Louis. And to talk about, you know, how much things had not changed during that time period. And I remember after I finished giving this presentation, talking about all the discrimination and everything that I had faced during the Q&A, one of the students raised his hand and he says, well, you know, well, all that, you know, when you were there, you were here, you know, back in the 60s and things have really changed since then, you know, here at the school. And I looked at him and I says, I don't believe they really have. Mm -hmm. I says, because when I was here, it was like there was a quota of no more than two to three blacks per graduating class. And I said, the last time I checked, that still exists. Mm. And the whole auditorium just kind of went quiet. And so what the school was trying to do was they were say, well, you know, we have more people of color. And I says, but I'm not looking at people of color. I says, I'm looking at African-Americans.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: still restricted us to two or 3 per pro-graduating class.
0: And still today.
1: And still today.
0: So tell me how you went from, say, cross-country, but you say you really didn't like and running three to four, three miles a day average? Yes. To being a decorated distance runner? Well, when I was
1: working at Texas Instruments, they had a corporate track team. And like I said, I was already running just about three or four miles. And so I decided to participate in a 10K or 6.2 mile run. of have race. It was at the Cowtown Marathon. And up to that point, point in time, I had never seen marathoners. I really had never even thought about running a marathon. But at the starting line, I looked up and saw these marathoners and I thought, oh, well, if they could do it, there's no reason why I can't do it. So I started essentially a year-long program to train for my first marathon.
0: How did you find your program to train?
1: I had to do a lot of reading. This was well before the internet, and the only way you could really train for a marathon was by reading books. Okay. So I read books from everyone from George Sheehan to Jim Fix, Joe Henderson. In fact, I still have a lot of their books here. I still use them as references. So I put together my marathon training program. And back then, the wisdom was if you couldn't run a marathon in under four hours, you shouldn't even attempt it.
0: Okay. Okay. That would eliminate all of my marathons.
1: (laughs) It was a world of difference. There is nothing like crossing the finish line in under four hours, and they are literally taking the finish line down.
2: Mm.
1: Wow. So I trained really hard. I stood in the starting line of my very first marathon in 1982, and these white runners around me who didn't know me started looking at me, saying, oh, you're too big to run marathons. I mean, it was somewhat of was a actually put-down. That to you? Yeah, they were saying that to me and they were all talking about me, you know, as they were all around me. Oh, yeah, you know, you look like, you know, you're more of a football player, you're a sprinter, you shouldn't be doing this. But I finished that first marathon in three hours and 59 minutes. It was a four hour marathon. Impressive. And it was all about, to me, people trying to put us in a box. You know, Mm -hmm. looking at you without even knowing you, without knowing anything about your background and your training, but they see that, you know, you're African-American and they will immediately start making these assumptions. And my thing is, is I'm not going to live in a box that other people put me in. You know, I want to make my box bigger, move it around wherever I want to. But, you know, just because she put me in a box doesn't mean that I have to live there. So I went on and ran that first marathon and decided that I was gonna run a couple of marathons a year. I live here in Dallas, so I was gonna always run a Dallas and a Fort Worth marathon. My goal was to run those two marathons every year until my children got old enough to get out of the house, and then I would start exploring marathons in other parts of the country. So for 20 years, I just ran the Dallas Marathon and the Cowtown Marathon and just the marathons within the state of Texas. And I think on my 47th marathon is when I finally ran one outside of the state.
0: What was the first one outside of the state?
1: That was Chicago. Okay. 2001. Okay. It was quite an adventure because the month before I ran a marathon that had fewer than 50 people. And then I ran Chicago that had about 20 or 30,000 people.
0: Yeah, now it's up to so, 40,000. Yes. So with that,
1: I realized I enjoy small marathons more than I do the marathon majors. Why? It's just. Uh, well, one, I find with the smaller marathons, I get to see more of nature, so to speak. The courses, you know, can run through forests, state parks since I would work downtown, I see glass builders and concrete all the time. So I okay. looking for something a little bit different.
0: Okay. So I know you mentioned in your book that you suffered from RWB, Running While Black. Yes. And I read about your experiences. We all know about the unfortunate killing of Ahmaud Aubrey, but it's things that we have to think about that other people don't think about. And I also heard, even from the triathlon community, just riding your bike in certain areas, particularly down south, and seeing Confederate flags and people like riding beside you with gas fumes just to aggravate and annoy you, which wouldn't have happened to our other counterparts. Can you tell me about some of your experiences? Oh, yes. I consider
1: living in Dallas, or the state of Texas, people say, well, how do you like Texas? I said, well, Texas is like Mississippi with oil wells. You just kind of put it in that perspective. Yes, and when I started running distances down here, yeah, there could be some interesting things that could happen. While I was a grad student over in Fort Worth, one of the things I did was I started taking judo. And later on, I started taking Shotokan Karate and moved up through the ranks of being a brown belt. The reason I did that was truly for self-protection. One of my senseis I remember telling me when I was really, truly interested in getting into weapons, he said, you know, you really shouldn't become too dependent on the weapons because the chances are great when you need it, it's not going to be there. It's kind of like, you know, if you're laying on the beach and some guy comes up and he kicks sand in your face, you can't say, well, excuse me, let me go to my car, get my gun and come back. Yes you're gonna have to be able to defend yourself with basically with what you have. Because of the different challenges of being a distance runner, I ended up taking martial arts as a way of being able to defend myself. But yeah, people have tossed beer cans, water jugs out their car windows. I've been called the N word. More than one occasion while I've been running, folks have followed me in cars. I was running through one neighborhood and a guy even slowed down and stopped and asked me if I was lost. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, no, I know exactly where I'm going. I've had quite a few interesting encounters. Fortunately, no one has ever gotten out of their car, though. In
0: 2005, you co-founded the National Black Marathon Association. Can you tell me about why and what went into incorporating the National Black Marathon Association?
1: Yes. In fact, I was in Chicago at the National Black Data Processing Associations Conference. And I was giving a presentation about goal setting. I happened to have said that I had a goal of running 50 marathons before I turned 50 years old. And I had run 47 marathons by that time. And I hadn't thought anything of it. So I'd been running marathons then for about 20 years. And the only black marathoners that I had met were the ones that I had trained. So it was only two or three other black marathoners. In that room, there were several other marathoners and they grabbed me after I finished making a presentation and said, we've never met another black who's ever run 47 marathons. And I had never given it much thought because I was just kind of doing it for myself and just didn't know anyone else. So one of those individuals who grabbed me was Charlotte Simmons, who lived in Atlanta, who was with the South Fulton Running Partners, which was an all black running club. She said, you know, well, when you get ready to run your 50th marathon, let us know and come up there and join. You. So it took two or three years before I finally got to the point of having that 50th marathon. But she came up here and brought several of the club members with her. And it was funny because all of us ended up winning age group or weight division trophies in this particular marathon. It was a small marathon and I'd been running it for several years. And people like said, wow, where did these folks come from? Not only did they come here, they all ended up running away with trophies. Charlotte and I were talking about, hey, you know, it'd be great, you know, to get together as many Black runners as we could from around the country to meet at a particular location once a year. Just kind of just all get together and run a race. Find an event where there's a marathon, a half marathon, a five or 10K or something like that. So there's something for everyone. A couple of years later, I ran a marathon in my hometown of St. Louis. And unbeknownst to me, the marathon course ran by the projects that I used to live in, in St. Louis, the Blumeyer Projects. Okay. Some little kids were sitting there on the side of the curb watching the runners go by, and they decided to kind of run along with me. So I would run along with them talking, and and it hit me that them looking at me, I became possibly a role model for them. Just being out there and them seeing me out there may have opened up their eyes to the possibilities of what they could do. Charlotte and I had been talking, and so finally I said, hey, let's go ahead, let's form this organization, National Black Marathoners Association. We would meet up once a year somewhere around the country, and we would offer college scholarships to deserving high school distance runners. We ended up forming the organization, and then after several years, we noticed that the white running community really didn't recognize the accomplishments of African-American distance runners. And not only that, a lot of African-American distance runners did not have black role models. So we said, if we can recognize the accomplishments of African-American distance runners, we could create more role models. And once we see some of the things that other blacks have accomplished, we'll go ahead and start pursuing those goals also. We decided we would organize the National Bike Distance Running Hall of Fame, where we can indeed recognize the accomplishments of those runners. We would also, at the same banquet, recognize the accomplishments of kind of ordinary runners who have done extraordinary things. So if an individual has run marathons or half marathons in all 50 states, marathons or half marathons on all seven continents. 100 marathons or half marathons are individuals who have qualified for and completed at least three Boston marathons. We recognize them also at the banquets, which we now have every other year. When I was in the starting line area of my first marathon and the white runners were talking about how I didn't look like a marathoner and how I was too big to run a marathon, they didn't realize that my role model for distance running was social activist Dick Gregory. He is Born and raised in St. Louis, a lot of St. Louisans knew about the fact that he was an all-American collegiate cross-country and track runner. After reading his book and realizing that in 1976, Dick Gregory ran from L.A. to New York and averaged 41 miles a day. So I was telling myself, if Dick Gregory can average 41 miles a day, for me, doing 26.2 miles in one day is, is absolutely nothing in comparison
0: That's true. In comparison.
1: Having him as a role model is what got me through that first marathon and subsequently all the others.
0: Tell me about the time you met him when you were inducted into the National Black Distance Running Hall
1: of Fame. Yes, we had announced, well, once we created the Hall of Fame, one of the things we decided to do is that we were going to induct Dick Gregory into the Hall of Fame researching dick gregory we also found out about his brother ron gregory so his brother ron gregory was actually faster than dick gregory was so ron gregory actually set the national high school record into one mile okay i had spent a lot of time trying to track down dick gregory because one thing that we would not announce his induction into the hall of Fame so we talked to him first so it's like we didn't want to kind of do like some people do where they'll tweet something out, and you find out as a result of the tweet.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, yes.
1: <laughs> Once we learned about his brother, we decided it would be great to induct both of them into the Hall of Fame. I was able to reach his brother, his brother Ron. And in talking with Ron, it turns out we had met when he was teaching at Soldan High School in St. Louis, and my mother was the principal secretary there. So I actually met him back in the 1960s. Okay. And from talking to him, I was able to, of course, get to Dick Gregory. It's funny to have your role model that you've had since the 1960s. Now we're looking at around 2015, I am finally had an opportunity to sit down and interview Dick Gregory. Because he wasn't going to be able to to make it to the Hall of Fame banquet, but he was going to be here in Dallas. The organization that had him there said they would give him, you know, give me five minutes of time to interview him. They set the stage up and I'm sitting there and I'm interviewing him. First of all, the first thing he did when we sat down, he tapped my knee and he said, I've heard about you and I've heard about your organization. And I about fell out of my seat, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, Dick Gregory has, has heard of the National Bike Marathonist Association. This is supposed to be a five-minute interview. So about 15 to 20 minutes into the interview, there is a short break, and his manager said, uh, Mr. Gregory, uh, you know, we need to get moving. You know, we, we have these other things for you to do. We need to hurry this along. Dick Gray returned and looked at her and he said, I'm the star. (laughs) I do what I want to do. And I want to talk to this young man about my days as a distance runner. It hit me that moment that very few people, if anyone had ever interviewed this man about the thing that he truly loved. And that was distance running. Mm -hmm. So we ended up talking for another 10 or 15 minutes and I was amazed at the fact that this is running is what led to the integration of sports in the state of high school sports in the state of Missouri.
2: Okay.
1: So when he was a junior in high school, he set a state or national record for the one mile, but they refused to recognize it because it was run at a segregated track meet. Mm-hmm. So back then in the state of Missouri, white high schools and black high schools were separate. Yeah, they did not compete against each other. Mm-hmm. Dick Gregory was angry. So that fall, he led a walkout of the black high schools in St. Louis. And it put pressure on the superintendent of the St. Louis School District. And he said, you know, what well, What can we do to get these kids back to school? And Dick Gregory said, integrate the sports. So what they didn't realize was that they weren't just integrating track and cross-country. They ended up integrating all the high school sports in the state of Missouri. That is where possibly he got his activism. That's where it started, hmm. ironically, from this is distance running. Didn't
0: know that. Hmm.
1: Yes. It was great interviewing him. I mean, you just say two words and he'll talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> And unfortunately, a few months after that interview, he passed away. Mm. So we may have the only recorded interview of Dick Gregory talking about being a distance runner.
0: That's amazing. How did you come up with the logo for the organization?
1: The logo for the organization is of 1865. And I was out running and I get a lot of ideas while I'm running. And right before I I went for the run, Charlene and I were talking. It says, well, you know, we've organized the National Black Marathoners Association. This was in 2004, November 2004. And we did not have a logo. So while I was running, I was thinking about what represents distance runners or racing in general. And it turns out it was a race number. So then I thought, okay, so yeah, we can have a race number with NBMA going across the top for National Black Marathoners Association. And then I started thinking about what number should appear on the bib. Growing up, I was also a black history buff. While I was running, I was thinking of, okay, 1865. Well, that was the year of the 13th Amendment, which freed the slaves. So our logo ended up being 1865, free to run. Mm-hmm. Because when slavery was over, we were free to run any place that we wanted to. Even though the physical shackles were gone, there were a lot of mental shackles that were still left over from slavery. I always found it interesting when talking with another black person and say, hey, you know, I'm a distance runner. The first thing they would say is, well, black people don't run distances. Yeah. And even some high school and track coaches, you know, when you talk to them, they say, well, blacks only do the sprints. They don't do the distances. That's for the Africans. And I really got to thinking about where did this whole concept come from that blacks don't run distances and kind of going back to the days of slavery. I'm just imagining a slave master trying to plant a seed in our head that we shouldn't run very far because if we knew we could run far, we would escape. Mm -hmm. So might this be where this whole concept that black people don't run distance came from? And we, in turn, pass it down to other generations of blacks when we say blacks don't run distances. So I really wanted to dispel that, that we are indeed free to run. We need to get that mental chain from slavery out of our minds and out of our systems. Just as when I've heard people say, Well, you know, blacks aren't good in math, blacks aren't good in science, you know, blacks shouldn't go into medicine, you know, that's that's not something we're good at. And I say, you know, that is that's
0: on the- ski all these other myths. Right.
1: You know, we need to really let go of those chains.
0: In 2007, you made history as the first Black person in the world to complete a marathon on all seven continents. How was the experience of running on all seven continents? Wow. I know it's a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The one race that I'll say that really, I guess the most pressure filled of all races for me was the Antarctica Marathon.
0: I can imagine.
1: Because when I ran it, we had to sail down there on a ship to get to Antarctica. And I quickly realized I was the only Black that was going to be in that particular race. And so this was in 2007. Like, said, so we had organized the Black Marathoners in 2004. So I'm sailing on the ship and... Hundreds of members, if not maybe even a thousand, from the Black Marathoners Association are all looking at kind of me going down to Antarctica. And I had never in my life met another Black who had ever been to Antarctica, let alone even run in Antarctica. During that trip, I realized that if I failed, if I didn't complete that marathon, it would have sent a message throughout the Black running community at that time that maybe this is something Blacks really just shouldn't pursue. Maybe it's something that's not for us. You know, maybe we can't handle the cold weather. So there was a lot of pressure, I guess, really, that I had put on myself, looking at if I had failed this, the impact it may have on the future of African Americans traveling to international races. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, even up to that point, I had not met other Blacks that were traveling around the world running in different races. So there was a lot of pressure on me to finish that race. And fortunately, I was able to make it. I was in bed for about 36 hours afterwards, just trying to get warm again. But I was able to finish it. And then it was while I was down there. I found out that there had not been any other blacks in the world to complete marathons on all seven continents. So eight days after I ran the marathon there in Antarctica, I ran a marathon in South America, which was my sixth continent. And I always wanted Africa to be the seventh continent. So I went ahead and made my reservations to run the Safaricon marathon in Kenya. Okay. And so I was able to complete that marathon in June of 2007. And it took about a couple of weeks for them to verify that I was indeed the first Black in the world to complete marathons on all seven continents. I was very, very happy that it was over. And in fact, several years later with the National Black Marathoners Association, because so many Blacks were talking about that, hey, I want to do an international race, But I don't want to do it alone. Mm -hmm. So we decided every other year, in addition to having our annual summit, we would also have an international summit as a way of, you know, encouraging blacks to go to international races. When I did the Seven Continents, I was only black on the entire tour group, if not in the entire race. Mm -hmm. And I said, if I could just get three other people who knew how to play spades, I would have a. Even better trip. <laughs>
0: That's true. Tell me, Antarctica, how did you train for that race as far as the coal? Or are you just...
1: Well, luckily, I'm from St. Louis, my hometown. And when I played sports in high school, I played soccer. And our soccer season was actually in the winter time. Okay. Back then, I like to say before global warming we had tons of snow during the winter time. They had to literally mark off the soccer field with crushed charcoal so you could see the lines on the field. And then when I moved down here to Texas, our winters, like right now, it's about 65 degrees outside, so it's really difficult to train in the winter. That particular year, I had been training here in Dallas. It didn't get colder than like 40 degrees, but I noticed that there was going to be a snowstorm that was going to be hitting St. Louis. And as soon as I saw it was going to be extremely cold, lots of snow, lots of wind, I remember calling my dad and said, I'm driving up to St. Louis. So I went up there and was able to finally try out the different clothes that I might wear in Antarctica. As far as dressing up in layers, I remember the weatherman was saying, don't go outside, you know, it was, weather's really bad, and I was out there. So trying different pairs of gloves, different combinations of socks and shoes. Ended up dressing in layers, and I was able to survive the marathon. Now, back then with the Antarctica Marathon, there were no aid stations. Because there were no aid stations, that meant there were no portalettes. So in training for the marathon, I had to train, I had to try to figure out how much I could drink to stay hydrated without having to go to the restroom during the entire race. It was a different beast.
0: How much longer was that marathon in comparison to your average? That one took
1: me about two to two and a half hours longer than normal. I finished that one in seven hours. And by then I was averaging about four and a half to five hours for a marathon, But I was cold. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that before. The interesting thing is I've looked at photos. and I've known other people who have run the Antarctica Marathon since then. And when I looked at the photos, I don't even see snow on the ground. And when I ran it, you couldn't see the ground. Mm -hmm. So if they say, if you want to see the impact of global warming, go to Antarctica.
0: Would you run it again?
1: Yes, I would. To me, not only would I go down there to run it, but I would actually want to spend time down there. Okay. So when I was there, I think we spent total time was about 10 days. And now you know a lot of runners go down there and they'll just spend the night, run a marathon, wake up and leave the next day. So I want to experience the environment once I get there. Same thing when I, I ran the Great Wall of China Marathon. I stayed there for two weeks afterwards.
0: How was that marathon?
1: That was my slowest marathon. That one was about seven and a half
0: hours. Is it just because of stairs or is it uh...
1: Yeah, we were climbing up and down some 5,000 stairs during the race. And before we went there, they said, expect this to be your PW, your personal worth. So I thought to myself, if it's going to be my personal worst, I may as well take my camera, take photos during the race. Enjoy it. Yeah, so they said the last bus was going to leave to go to Beijing, you know, at at eight hours, so my goal was just to finish before the last bus left. And I ended up taking over 100 photos during the race and just had a blast. Mm -hmm. The thing I tell people, if you're going to set a personal worst for a marathon, make it so bad, you'll never get to it again. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So now my goal is as long as my marathons are less than seven and a half hours, I'm great. I'm good.
0: So you completed 100 marathons in 2013. What was your 100th marathon? What race?
1: My 100th marathon was the Cowtown Marathon in Fort Worth, which was also my first marathon. That was National Black Marathon Association. We had our annual summit there and it was really really memorable i have a photo with fred davis the third fred had run over i think 400 marathons by then angela ivory who had run over 250 marathons at that time that was my 99th marathon charlotte's the co-founder of the black marathoners association and a gentleman there named Donald Arnold, who had run 37 marathons, but he had run all of them with a transplanted heart, mm. and all of us were black. So they say the odds of finding a person who would run one marathon was rare, but to have, I think I added it up once, we had run over 700 marathons collectively. And a lot. And, yeah, and... To me, that is one of my favorite photos.
0: And you also completed a marathon in each of the 50 states.
1: Yes. That was a goal that I had not decided to do, Mm -hmm. literally, until talking with, with other Black runners. There's Nathan Skipper. I met him, and he was saying, yeah, his goal was to run a marathon in all 50 states And, but his goal was also to take his children to all 50 states before they graduated from high school. And I thought, now that is, that's really something. He's exposing his children to everything around the country. And he was able to do that with both of his sons. And Angela Ivory had also run marathons in all 50 states. So it was something I had not even thought about until I was talking to both of them. What's your favorite race and why? Oh, God. Uh, So I'm on the board of directors of the Dallas Marathon. And I like to say that would be my favorite domestic marathon.
2: Okay.
1: My favorite international marathon would be the French Riviera Marathon. It runs from Nice to Cannes. You have a beautiful Mediterranean on your left during the entire race. Beautiful French villas on the Right. You're running along the coast. I remember the the low temperature that day was 52, the high was 56. There weren't any noticeable hills. And the scenery was just gorgeous. So that's my all-time favorite marathon.
0: Okay. I found something interesting in your book about you learning how to do flip turns. <laughs> In your experience, which I've had a similar problem. I haven't figured it out yet. And I said, I'm just going to learn how to be a better swimmer and I'll pick it up later because I can't even flip. So, (laughs) but tell me about that experience. Oh, God. Yeah. So one of my
1: goals, again, kind of going back, when I look at goals, I look at some of the goals and things that I always wanted to do growing up as a kid. When you grow up and you are socially, economically challenged, you just kind of had dreams. So one of my dreams was I always wanted to be able to swim a mile. And I got to the point where I could swim a mile. But then years later, I decided I was going to kind of cut back my running mileage and I was going to try to swim 1,500 yards or 1,500 meters two or three times a week in addition to running. And I got so that I could swim 1,500 meters, but I was hanging on to the end of the pool. And I wanted to swim the 1,500 meters faster, and I knew the only way I could do it was to learn how to do a flip turn. I was having dinner with Sika Henry, who last week just finally was able to uh, run a sub-three-hour marathon. She's African-American, and she's trying to become the first professional female She's ranked in the top 10 in the world in her age group for the half Ironman. And then the other person is Lisa Davis. So Lisa set the Guinness Book of Records for running marathons on all seven continents in seven days, 27 minutes, and some odd seconds. She's also run over 100 marathons, marathon in all 50 states, and like I said, marathon on all seven continents. And whenever I'm in the Hampton Beach area, Virginia Beach area, we always get together for dinner. So it is very humbling for all of us, but we can be very open about, you know, the challenges that we might be having on achieving these different goals. So at this one dinner we were having, and I was talking about flip turns, and Lisa was talking about how yeah, you know, she was going to be running the JFK 50-miler on Saturday, and her daughter wanted her to run the Philly Marathon on Sunday. And so she was talking about the logistics of running a 50-miler on one day and a full marathon the very next day. So she's just looking at it from the logistics of getting from, I think, D.C. to Philly. And I remember saying, well, you know, I could probably get you a comp entry in the Philly Marathon if that'll help you. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah. So and then Sika's talking about doing a, I don't know, half Ironman, or she was a two-time winner of the One City Marathon, so we're all having this discussion, I'm talking about my fears of doing flip turns, and a guy and his wife are eavesdropping on our conversations because they just couldn't believe these three black folks are talking about some really far-reaching goals. And yeah. so he ended up literally cutting into our conversations. Who are you guys and what do you do? <laughs> so we kind of went around the table and told a little bit about ourselves. And he was just totally blown out the water. I was sharing with them my fears of doing a flip turn because I'm used to just breathing, have basically having this rhythm for breathing. Then I had a fear of being upside down underwater when I realized when I was in school, I could not be a gymnast because I would close my eyes when I'm supposed to have them open. It's like, and it's something I ended up realizing this from martial arts also, is when someone's about to hit your face, you have to focus on keeping your eyes open so that you can duck okay. rather than blinking. Closing, yeah. Yeah. So it's this weird thing where you have to learn to keep your eyes open. When you truly want to shut them. Mm -hmm. So I had all these different fears associated with doing a flip turn, but I had to break the flip turn down and address each one of those fears. So I told myself, well, I don't have a problem breathing because I can hold my breath, literally swim the length of the swimming pool underwater holding my breath. So if, if I can do that, I should be able to hold it while doing a flip turn. With regards to keeping my eyes open, well, I just have to focus on, as soon as I get to the wall, say, okay, just don't blink. And most people can just not blink for 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to be underwater for less than 30 seconds so I could keep my eyes open. So for me, it was breaking down all the different things that I feared and addressing each one of those individually, I remember Lisa was telling me, being a former Marine, she was saying, oh, just do it. Just do it. You know, no excuses. I'm not going to take any excuse for why you're not going to be able to do this flip turn. And Sika, being a triathlete, is giving me all these different pointers about approach the wall. You know, you force your arm down and, you know, you do all these different things. And then I remember my bonus daughter, Jalik, always told me, you know, you can look at anything on YouTube, learn how to do it. That's true. So that evening, I was driving back to the resort, stayed up late, was looking at YouTube videos on how to do a flip turn. And the next morning, I got to the swimming pool there at the resort and started practicing everything that I was seeing and was finally got to the point where I could do a flip turn.
0: So you taught yourself?
1: Taught myself how to do a flip turn. And came back to Dallas, went to the pool that I've been going to for months and was kind of proud of myself because I was going to be one of the cool kids in the pool now because I could do a flip turn and swam down the length of the pool, did that flip turn and sank straight down to the bottom because I was too far away from the wall.
0: Oh, okay. So you couldn't uh, push off. <laughs> could not push off
1: and came back up gasping for air in the Swim coach happened to be in the next lane, and she looked over at me. She says, don't worry, everyone does it the first time. You know, everyone sinks the first time, so don't worry about it. So ever since then, I've been able to do the flip turn. For me, it was fun learning how to do that, considering I was 64 years old, learning to do flip turns for the first time.
0: Well, I'm impressed you learned how to do it by yourself. I've tried with my coach and YouTube videos so I'm still working on it. I just learned how to swim three years ago. So Oh. Well congratulations. So, <laughs> to do triathlons. So and Sika's one of my role models. So I've okay. never met her, but I I see her via social media. <laughs> okay.
1: She she's really cool. It's like I said, I devoted really the last chapter of my book to the dinner with the two of them because it's one of the things that I tell people is, you know, you hang out with people who are, you know, maybe a generation younger than you are kind of use them for motivation.
0: You have artifacts at the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Tell me about that experience in your interview with CNN.
1: This kind of goes back to 1968. My mother was a principal secretary at the high school, and she was able to convince the principal to let her be the chaperone with the senior trip. And this is an all-black high school. And my brother and I were in middle school, so she convinced the principal to let her take my brother and I along with her. And the night before the trip, we were in a department store and noticed a bunch of people crowding around television sets. And we walked over to that department, found out Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated in Memphis. Hmm. And the next morning, we boarded a bus. This is high school senior class going to Washington, D.C., which at that time was... Rioting and looting was just going crazy there. We went to the Capitol with our passes to get into this Capitol for our tour, and they refused to let us in because we were an all-black group. Mm -hmm. And so we literally had to step aside to let white tour groups go in. Mm -hmm. When that happened, we ended up spending more time at the Smithsonian museums. Being, again, a history buff and what have you that I was, I was fascinated by being there. And thought to myself, "Wow, it would be great to do something whereby I could have something in a Smithsonian Museum." So this is, you know, black kid, junior high with all these dreams and aspirations. A couple of decades later, I was in D.C. with my own family, and we went to the again Smithsonian museums, and we went to the uh, Space Museum, went to this exhibit that what they call the Star Exhibit. Went in this room, and they had all these things. In the shapes of stars they had like lucky charm cereals of stars from that and cookie cutters in the shapes of stars and i looked up and i had some sunglasses by bootsy collins from parliament funkadelic mm-hmm. and I'm a huge fan of parliament funkadelic and it just really had me thinking about the dream that i had back in 1968 doing something to get in the smithsonian museum So I was thinking it would be maybe in an area of technology since I was working in that particular area. Maybe I was going to invent something. I didn't know. While I was, and I was at this time running marathons, once I started running marathons on all seven continents, I just had a habit of after every international marathon, just kind of packing up the artifacts from it and just kind of putting it in a box. And I did this with the artifacts from my last marathon in Kenya. I think it was around 2012. I got a letter from the uh, African-American Museum in Washington, D.C., expressing an interest in the artifacts that I had kept from the Kenyan marathon. So I ended up sending the artifacts to them, and they have the running shoes, the shorts. At that time... The Black Marathoners Association, we weren't selling clothes with our logo on them. I actually had a special shirt made up with the logo and ran with that shirt in Kenya. And so that shirt is also there with the museum as well as, like I said, other artifacts from the trip. It was quite an honor for me to have done something that ended up with those particular items in the Smithsonian Museum. I thought it would be about technology, and it ended up being about running. You know, just who knows?
0: You're an accomplished runner as well as an accountant, project manager. I read in your book that when you were a child, you had problems with stuttering, and I thought about President-elect Joe Biden. How did you overcome that to become the person you are today?
1: I'd have to take my hat off to my give credit basically to my mother, one when I was in school, they had me going to speech classes, but she also somehow got me involved with welcoming the visitors at our church. So I went to Westside Baptist Church in St. Louis, and it was a relatively large church. And so every Sunday I had to stand up in front of the entire congregation and read off the names of the visitors and welcome them to the church. And it was just, I think, being in front of the audience, I found myself focusing more on what I was saying. I ended up, even to this day still, I kind of slow my speech down a little bit because I'm thinking about what I'm going to say before I say it. So I overcame my fear of speaking in front of crowds. I find that when I talk about the things that I know, I'm less likely to stutter. Yeah, so I was able to overcome that particular fear.
0: Speaking of President elect Joe Biden. Tell me about the time when you met President Ford.
1: Yes, I was a graduate student at TCU, Texas Christian University. And even as a grad student, I was president of the Black Student Union there. I did not realize the president was going to be coming to the university until I received an invitation to go to this breakfast with the president, and student leaders. So there were only gonna be about eight of us at the breakfast with the President of the United States. And I was the only black and the only graduate student there. Undergraduates there were like, kind of like a deer in a headlight. You know, <laughs> when you talk to the President of the United States, just come out of like an economics class. So I thought to myself, well, let me go ahead and talk to him about economics. So I started talking to him about the different economic theories, and I was really impressed that he knew about what the three economic theories were. So we were having a discussion about it. And the undergraduate students were looking like, you know, with their mouths just open, like, (laughs) this guy's talking to the president about (laughs) economics. And then because earlier I mentioned that I'm a stamp collector. And so I started asking him about, you know, the different foreign countries that had just gained their independence. And it was really interesting And the one thing that came from that is after you've had a conversation with the president of the United States, you feel like you can talk to anyone. And in corporate America, I've dealt with people who thought they were, quote, powerful, Mm -hmm. and they thought that I should be shaking in my boots talking to them. And I'm just looking at them, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I had breakfast with the president.
0: (laughs) I can talk to you. Why am I going to be afraid of talking (laughs) to
1: you? You know, you're just the CEO of Oracle. You're just, you know, you're just over this company. You know, so what's the big deal? It's interesting because I think a lot of whites don't expect us to just step up to the plate and have a conversation with them as an equal. And Mm -hmm. so when I'm talking with them, I'm looking at them eye to eye. I'm not backing down. Holding my own. And that scares the living daylights out of some people. But it's like, hey, that's their issue, not mine.
0: Any last minute pearls or words of wisdom that you would like to share with my listeners?
1: Yes, I think there are a lot of things I'm sure that your listeners would love to do. They kind of have their bucket list. Things will stay on your bucket list until you give yourself a deadline for when you need to have it done. Once you give yourself a deadline for when you need to have it accomplished, put together a schedule on how to get from point A to point B to make that goal happen. When I was having the dinner with Lisa and Sika, Lisa said, you know, hey, there's no excuse. You know, you can do it. And I did not have an excuse not to do it, not to start working on it the very next day. I also have a point, I don't set New Year's resolutions. I don't either. If it's important enough to me to start working on, I can just start working on it today.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it takes all the pressure off of trying to start 101 things on January the 1st. Just start it today.
0: Where can people find you on, where can they purchase your latest book from the road race to the rat race? They can purchase the
1: book. It's out on Amazon. They can also go to my website, runningtoleadership.com, and there's a link there also where they can purchase it. When they purchase it from my website, by the way, they get free shipping and handling as well as an autograph copy.
0: So I will include links to your books as well as to information on National Black Marathon Association. Okay, well,
1: thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Okay.
0: That wraps up this episode of Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please, if you already haven't, download Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email running is cheaper than therapy, O L B, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, that is running is cheaper than therapy, O as in Omaha, L as in love, B as in Brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Handle We O U I Life L I V E. We O U I Love L O V E. Again, We O U I Life L I V E. We O U I Love. Thank you and please tune in again.